Well, thanks, Neil, and welcome, everybody, to Trinity College Queensland. If you've never been here before, welcome. Some of you go here, so welcome back. Some of you are in Greek with me, so it's going to continue to be hard, but it's beautiful. Um, hope it's not making you doubt. The title of tonight's talk, I believe, help my unbelief, comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And you may have read this story before. You may have never heard it. It's the story about a man whose son was sick, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, can you heal my son? And Jesus is basically like, of course I can. And he's like, um, if I could heal him, of course, I can do anything with faith. And the guy says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I've always gravitated toward that verse because it really resonates with something in my heart that I think is at work amongst all of us. And that is to say, we believe, many of us in this room, we believe, and yet, if we're honest, mingled with that belief is uncertainty. You know, it's, it's sometimes doubt is anxiety. And depending on what kind of church or community you come from, that's going to look different and feel different for you. And I've noticed two types of churches that I've been in. And there's probably more, but two is good because I can use both sides to demonstrate. Right? So the first ones are the people who deny doubt. These doubt deniers view uh, doubt as something dangerous to the faith, something weak about your faith. And, you know, we'll let doubt come to the building of our faith that we've made, but we'll never let it breach the gate. Because if doubt comes in, it's just a slippery slope to atheism and to liberalism and to any other ism that's bad. So we're going to explain everything, and there's no doubt. You can't have doubt. This is bad. But some of us come from the other side of the spectrum in communities that really celebrate uncertainty. Right? And there's been a theologian recently from Ireland named Peter Rollins, and he's an example of this. He'll say, doubt is divine. And so what you end up having is people who say, you know, come to this ver version of faith where it's so murky and so unknowing and so mysterious that we actually can't say anything. And yet I think in those communities, none of those approaches are helpful. At least they're not helpful for me. Maybe they're helpful for you. But what I want to suggest is that there's a middle way between doubt, denial, and uncertainty celebration. And this middle way is a healthier way of dealing with something that we all face at different times, which is uncertainty about the faith, which is doubt, if, if we're honest. And so I want to invite you on this middle way tonight. And it, basically, the sense will be this. Instead of denying doubt and celebrating uncertainty, the middle way will confront doubt. And the middle way will integrate uncertainty but in a way that rests not on our own faith buildings that we build up and try to protect, but that will rest on the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ, who God is, what he has done. And so we're going to get into that. But first, what I really want to talk about is what does actual biblical true faith look like? Because central to healthy ways of doubting is having a biblical view of faith that is able to accommodate uncertainty that is able to integrate mystery into the life of faith without losing the faith. So from the beginning, I would say that Christian theology has always emphasized the centrality of faith, meaning our faith in God. And this is a good thing. And you might think of verses that you have read. One that comes to mind for me is Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast, right? And so, as far as it goes, amen, yes, right? We're saved by grace through faith. But what I've found is, 
somewhere along the way, especially in the Protestant traditions, the idea of this has become we are saved by our own faith primarily, meaning our own absolute certainty about the things of God. You might say, yeah, so what's wrong with that? Well, what happens, right? What happens when your faith isn't strong enough? What happens when your faith isn't able to persevere? What happens when your faith is weak? What, faith, what happens when your faith is not correct enough? What happens when you doubt and you die doubting? Can God then save you? If you're saved on the basis of the strength, quantity, and correctness of your own faith, that puts a lot of weight on faith. When we emphasize our own faith, our trust in God is built on ourselves instead of God. It's a strange thing that we do. It's built on something that we do rather than something that God has done. So what am I saying? Am I saying that it doesn't matter if you have personal faith? No way. I'm not saying that at all. This is a crucial component to Christianity. What I am saying, though, is that our shifting, imperfect, unpredictable faith is not meant to function as the foundation of our confidence in God. Instead, our faith in God's faithfulness is meant to be the basis of our relationship with God. What God has done and who God is is how and is the basis of our faith. And I think, the way I think of it is, faith is less like a scientist's calculated theory and more like the trust of a child and the goodwill and wisdom of their parent. Faith is about relational trust in God. It's not about intellectual certainty about God. A few weeks ago, I was down at one of the many great parks in Tawang, where I live. Great community. Also great church. Tawang Uniting Church. Tawang Uniting Church. Right down the street from Tawang Village. Thank you. Uh, uh, what? Um, and so I was down at one of these great parks. And Brisbane has great parks. You can, in the weather, you can be outside all the time. So if you have kids, it's wonderful. I took the training wheels off Liam's bike. My son just turned six. He's got the Spider-Man bike. I took the training wheels off. We're going to teach him to ride the bike, or I am. I'm terrified about this. I'm a very nervous person, you see. Uh, and so I'm running along the track with him. And, and I was really shocked, because after about 20, 30 minutes, he could go for little bits of time on his own. I was like, this is fantastic. So my anxiety level starts to go down. Within two hours, he's able to ride the thing on his own. And I'm like, this is great. It couldn't have gone any better than that. Now, when I took my son to begin to learn to ride his bike, I did not first give him a class on the physics of cycling. Son, you must understand all the quotients behind this, all the measurements and whatnot. No, I didn't give him that. Right? I also didn't use my mechanical prowess to take apart all the bicycle parts, the Spider-Man bike, and say, get down on your knee and say, son, here's how it works. I don't know any of the names of the parts. This, you turn this thing, and it, right? So, and, and it's a good thing that I didn't actually have to assemble or disassemble the bike, because the last time that I assembled a bike was a time of great shame and emasculation. This was the time uh, over Christmas that I put together the Barbie bike for my daughter. Has anyone ever put together one of these bikes from like a, a store? It looks very simple. My friends, it's very deceptive. 
after about four and a half hours, four and a half hours, staring at a unicorn bike with tassels and glitter, sitting on the floor, I realized that I was not capable of a job of this magnitude. <laughs> so I took the bike back, brought it to my local target, and they said, please get me a professional. <laughs> and they said, that'll be $20. I said, here you go. Right? You might think IKEA furniture is hard to put together, but you've never seen the Barbie bike. It will break you. It will crush your soul and leave you crying, sitting in a pile of ashes of despair and nothingness. And that's what happened to me. And luckily, that had nothing to do with what I had to do with Liam's bike, uh, which is a Spider-Man bike, so it's inherently cool. Um, <laughs> it's much better than the satanic Barbie bike. Um, and, and <laughs> but, but the point is, Liam didn't ask me for schematics. He didn't ask me for explanations. He didn't ask me for my qualifications. He trusted me. He trusted me to be there if he was going to fall. He knew that I was behind him like a helicopter parent that I am. Come on, son. Come on, son. I mean, I've never got this much exercise in my life. Um, but he trusted that I would be there. And he trusted me because he could put his faith in who I am to him as a father and in who I have been to him as a father, which is someone who's consistent, someone who's dependable, someone who's faithful. He trusted me not because of my qualifications. He trusted me because of my character. You see, and I think just as it is with Liam to me, so it is with us in our father. It is about our trust in his faithfulness, our trust in his character, so that when we don't have all the answers, things don't fall apart because God is the one in whom we trust, not our own faith project building ideas about him. In Romans 3.22, it says that God's righteousness, which, which really means God's faithfulness to the covenant to Abraham, that through Abraham, all the peoples of the world would be blessed, all the peoples of the world through Israel. That was the plan. It says that God's righteousness happens through our faith. No, it actually says through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. See, God's faithfulness is the foundation, and our faith is trust in his faithfulness, not in ideas about him, not in explanations of the infinite and, in some ways, unapproachable um, in terms of knowledge. Likewise, in Galatians 2.20, we read Paul saying this amazing, profound, strange thing. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live, hear this, by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. In 2 Timothy 2.13, you also hear this idea that, look, we're unfaithful to God. Nevertheless, it says, he will remain faithful even when we are unfaithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, I think this is kind of the basis of a faith that is able to doubt in a healthy way, a faith that is based in God's faithfulness. There's a popular worship song called Yes and Amen. This would, have you heard this song? This is also Yoda's favorite worship song. Faithful you are. Faithful forever you will be. Right? And he, you could just picture him in the swamps of Dagobah. Mm. Um, 
And, but I think, so sorry, so now what's going to happen the next time is you're going, faithful, you are, he's, he's going to pop up like young Padawan learner, <laughs> you know? and be like, you know what, is Yoda saved? Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> he's saved. He had faith in God, right? But what do the lyrics say of this bridge? Maybe you've never heard it. It says, I will rest in your faithfulness. I will rest in your faithfulness. My confidence is in your faithfulness. And so the emphasis is on God's faithfulness before our faith even comes into the picture. Yet I want to say that we operate often not according to this biblical view of trusting God's faithfulness. We operate on the basis of the quantity, quality, and correctness of our own faith. That's where we place our faith. And then when things start to fall apart, which they always do, we don't know how to handle it because the building of our faith ideas crumble because we haven't placed them on the faithfulness of God, which is God's character, which is his goodness, his trustworthiness through the ages. Yeah, faulty faith leads to unhealthy doubt. And this is where I think this is almost stigma with doubting in the church. And it, is, it stems from a faulty faith. We have these crises of faith that pop up. And I want to just talk about two of them this evening. And I want you to know something. There's clocks in this room. You want to know what they were put in last week? You want to know why these clocks were put in? You're looking at them. You're looking at them. There's been people up and down the hallways, and they're looking, is John still going? And it's like, yeah, man, I'm teaching Greek. How could I stop? By the way, if you want to take Greek here at Trinity College, Queensland, God is saying yes and amen. <laughs> Bring it on. Two ways that a faulty view of faith, faith in my own understanding of God, uh, leads to uh, really an unhealthy way to deal with doubt. And I'm going to talk about two of them. First one is faulty faith is incapable of incorporating mystery. It's just incapable of incorporating mystery. What do I mean by that? Well, for the doubt deniers, mystery is the ultimate boogeyman, right? How can I believe in God if I can't explain him? The idea is if we let mystery in, we have to let certainty out. And once we do that, everything goes down the slippery slope. And so they want to exclude mystery, right? They want to explain mystery. We can explain. We can explain rather than embrace mystery. And I think this is the problem. And on the other hand, and this is the one that bothers me more than, than trying to explain God. At least they're making an effort. The celebrants of uncertainty love mystery. They love it. Mystery. And, but the only problem is there's nothing other than mystery for them. So if you say to them, hey, man, is the resurrection like a thing? Like, what? tell me about the resurrection. Yeah, it's great mystery. And this is every question you have for them. Ooh, it's a mystery. I don't know. And you go, well, are other religions the same as Christianity? It's a mystery. It's like, we've got to go a little bit deeper than this, right? Because, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to show up at a church every Sunday where the answer is, I don't know. You know what would happen if you did that at your doctor's office? Doc, can you tell me what's wrong with me? It's a mystery. <laughs> man, man, I don't know. It's a big mist, like an ocean. It's like the ocean. It's like glitter and stars and mystery. Be like, dude, I need a new dentist. I need a new doctor. Right? But faith in God's faithfulness does not deny mystery. Faith in God's faithfulness 
does not celebrate mystery. It confronts mystery. It integrates mystery, but it does so by putting it in the, in the larger framework of God's faithfulness. It assumes God's faithfulness and then deals with mystery as it comes. Some time ago, I was listening to a podcast. Maybe some of you have heard this podcast. Uh, it's called The Liturgist Podcast. And there's a popular Christian artist, Michael Gunger, uh, who runs this podcast with a guy named Science Mike. It's really interesting. And these are just some genuine human beings who I really resonate with, who have gone from evangelical Christianity to a, just a complete loss of faith. Uh, and now they're trying to rebuild and reconstruct their faith. It ends up for them, and this is a bit of a critique, it ends up for them being, we can't know God. He's like the ocean and all this stuff. And so they, they're trying to hang on to something, but they, they can't figure out a way to do that within the framework of God's faithfulness. So it ends up being a great mystery again. But when you think about why, why does that happen, and maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you're sitting here saying, that's me. Right? And so this isn't a judgment on that. But why, how does that happen? Why does that happen? I think it comes from a faulty view of faith that says either we explain away mystery or we just embrace it and let the ether of the universe absorb us and try to explain everything as, as nothing. And what they say is, they, this horrible thing, they went on tour and they went to Germany um, and they saw, as some of you may have, the Holocaust sites and they looked at the sites of the Holocaust where six million Jews were killed Six million Jews were killed, one-third of the population of the entire Jewish people alive at that time. And they said, many of us have said, when faced with tragedy, if we're honest, how can a good God exist when six million moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, and little kids were exterminated by the genocide of Hitler and the Nazis? Have you thought of that before? Have you wrestled with that? It's devastating. It's devastating. It's gut-wrenching. And if we don't allow ourselves to feel that, and if we deny that, we're not grappling with the human experience or the heart of Jesus. At the other side of it, though, is just saying, I got to throw my hands up and walk away from God. What we're really saying is, because I can't figure it out, God is now subject to the intellect of me, a finite creature, to explain the infinite ways of God that I don't even have access to. And so, my friends, I just want to say that while, while I recognize wrestling with these things is good and real, but while I recognize that denial is not a fitting response to the tragedies of this magnitude, it's not a good response at all, neither is this apathetic, agnostic, atheistic, open embrace of mystery. I think both of them lead us into despair. I think both of them lead us further away from God. But when we're faced with these existential crises, then what do we do? What is the person who has biblical faith, which is trust in God's faithfulness, what does the person do? Well, I would propose that we do not rely on God's explanation, meaning our explanation of God, but we rely on revelation. Now, I'm going to have to back this up after because you go, what if I don't believe in revelation? <laughs> you should be thinking of that. So in order to confront and integrate doubt in a healthy way, we have to trust what we do know, what we can know about God, rather than collapse under the weight and insecurity of what we can't know about God. The God of Scripture is a God of compassion. He's a God of justice. He's a God of loving kindness. He's a God of faithfulness. He's a God who gives his own life for the sins of the world to save us. These things we can know about God. 
And I want to propose that what we need in these instances is faith that is like the trust of a child rather than faith that is like the certainty of a professor. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says, the people who inherit the kingdom must become like little children. Little children don't formulate ideas and demand answers before they trust you. They know you from your character, and they entrust themselves to you based on who you are and what you have done. And then they figure out the rest as they go. But they walk with you. They trust you. And this is the kind of faith we need. True faith, trust in God, desires to explain God, but understands that there are some elements of the infinite God that are going to defy explanation. They're just going to defy the, the potential and possibility of finite creatures because we are ruled by an infinite God. You see that point? I mean, if we say we as finite creatures must be able to explain the infinite wisdom of God, we're really saying we won't worship God unless we're God, unless we have his mind, which is an impossibility. Rather, we have to check the things that we can know. We have to lean on the things that we can know. We have to trust and put our faith in his faithfulness. Um, that's the first way is this inability to integrate mystery, to incorporate mystery. You either have to deny it or you have to just embrace it wholesale. Um, the second way that I want to talk about may be, and that may be where some of you are at. When you see the tragedies of the world, we can't explain them, therefore we reject God. That's, that's the problem with the first way of faulty faith. The second problem, though, has to do with the inability to integrate theological certainty. The inability, uh, uncertainty, rather. Have you ever been uncertain about theology? You should all nod your heads, Yes. Well, unless you were me at 23 when I first got saved, I was like, I know everything about theology, and it's everything John Piper says, and um, Calvin. There's other stuff? What? You know, like, no, you know, it can't be. Like, I just can't, uh, it's got to be this way or that way, black and white, you know. Um, but I, I think what I really mean is this idea that unless we have a, the whole package together, the building's going to fall apart. Have you ever you know, felt like that? If one brick comes out of my faith building, the whole thing will collapse, and then I'll have to become like a Buddhist or something, um, or you know, some other religion. Just have to leave the way of Christ. And some of these secondary theological issues, let's deal with those, that we might question is, well, how do we read the book of Genesis? Is it literal? Is it, is it a theological explanation? And that is a brick in our faith, and if we change that brick and we say, no, I want to change that brick, what happens to the whole building? It falls down in our view of faith, our faulty view of faith. Another one might be your view of baptism or your view of the end times, all of these sort of things. Uh, what do you think about the Lord's Supper, your view of the church, salvation, are you Catholic, Protestant, etc.? If one of those changes in the faulty view of faith, the whole building crumbles. Now, in my early 20s, I was a hardcore extreme Calvinist. Um, and like I said, I was sure about everything. Now, today I still love Calvin. I just know that like all fallible, messed up human beings, he's not correct on every single point about everything. That was news to me when I was 23. I was like, it can't be. He's not my beloved Calvin. Um, yet, we're under no obligation as Christians to believe the theology of one person, whether it be Calvin, Luther, your own pastor, bishop, priest, whatever. It's not like you can't go to church and be like, oh, gee, I disagree with that. I have to become an atheist. <laughs> right? But sometimes the church... In the broad sense, makes us feel like that. We feel like if we ask questions, we're bad people. Our faith is weak. We're losing our faith. Or we just have to embrace the nothingness. 
That's not the case. Uh, I did used to view my faith, faith as a sort of impenetrable, you know, perfect building. I think the first thing to go was my view of baptism changed. I was a Baptist, and I became an Anglican, so I was like, oh, you can baptize babies and kids, too. But that was just like a little brick. The, the building was going, and I was like, no, nah, infant baptism, and it was back up. So I was like, perfect. Then I started to have, and you think of your own things that have happened to you, I started to question predestination. I was like, it would be great if my entire family were not predestined to hell, since they're not Christians. That would be nice um, from eternity. Maybe there's another way. Uh, ooh, Karl Barth, uh, you know, in different theologies that say, hey, you can read this differently. You can, you can listen to Calvin or not, but there's other ways to faithfully read the text. Well, when I pulled that brick out, then the whole building came. And I really was, I literally said to the pastor, I'm just going to have to become a Buddhist at my pastor's time. And he's like, what? And I'm like, my Calvin building fell apart. <laughs> it's preposterous. Uh, everything, though, up to that point had fit. Everything was perfect until it wasn't. And that made me look really in a difficult way at how I was thinking about faith. And I realized that I was placing my faith in my favorite theologian rather than placing my faith in God. And that's not what the Bible calls us to do. The Bible doesn't call us to worship tidy theological systems that work perfectly and have no problems. The Bible calls us to worship Jesus. The Bible doesn't call us to freak out when we lose our Calvinism. Because if we lose our Calvinism or our Arminianism or our Catholicism, our systematic way of thinking, we don't lose Jesus because Jesus is the gospel, not Calvinism or Catholicism or, or Wesleyanism. As wonderful as those things are, as important as those things are, Jesus is the gospel. And I think sometimes, when I think back to my early life as a Christian, what I was actually worshiping were my ideas about Jesus rather than Jesus. Have you done that? Raise your hand if you've done that. I'm going to shame you all. <laughs> right? We've all done it because we don't like our ideas messed with. Leave them alone. No, when I lost my comprehensive and confident faith in Calvinism, I never lost my Jesus, right? And I wonder, have you had similar experiences? And consider this. Maybe you're thinking through some of those right now, and I'll give you the answer to every single one of them. No. <laughs> That's not the point, right? The point is the faithfulness of God. But consider this. What if you went from an understanding, a literal understanding of Genesis, which is one way to read Genesis that some people read, to a more theological uh, explanation that didn't refer to history, but just meant that God created the universe. Would taking that brick out wreck your faith? Just think about it. Right? If so, you might be worshiping your theology rather than Jesus. Because the, the way that one reads creation doesn't, it doesn't change the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done in his faithfulness. What if you changed your view? Some people like the rapture. In America, this is huge. People buy rapture kits. I don't even know what this is. Flashlights, whatever, in case the rapture comes. Well, what are you going to do? Play hide and seek? Play flashlight tag? You, go, you got your cheese and crackers. Fantastic. You know, It's just strange. Um, and uh, Although I think I will get a rapture kit just in case. Because <laughs> I really like cheese and crackers, and I like torches. Just, woo! Oh, Lord, please rapture me. Not now, though. Let me finish the talk. What if you went, uh, what if you change your view from a rapture to a different view of the end times, right? And that, would that sink your faith? Would something like that sink your faith? If that would sink your faith, you're probably worshiping your certainty rather than Christ. 
if that sort of thing would wreck your faith, you're worshiping the building. And it could be anything. It could be the sacraments or salvation or the way you think of ministry or any of these things. If you're worshiping the false comfort of your correct ideas, and that is the basis of your faith, you're worshiping your own intellect and you're worshiping yourself. That is idolatry, not doxology. That is the worship of self rather than the worship of God. And what happens is when the floods of uncertainty come and the winds of doubt blow, that house of cards that you built will come crashing down and great will be its fall, to paraphrase the Gospel of Matthew. Yet faulty faith places its trust in our own understanding and not in what God has done. And friends, I want to just say that denying doubt is delusional and Celebrating certainty is deadly, but true faith confronts, integrates, and deals with doubt. It doesn't avoid it. It doesn't avoid it. Now, all of this, you may be wondering, okay, I'm not going to let you off this easy, Frederick. Keep my eye on the time there. Did everyone have pizza? Good. That was my idea. I want you all to know that. <laughs> there was a time when it was like, oh, you know what we should give them is like, uh, you know, uh, cold cuts and, and crackers, my friends, that time is over. I said, give him pizza. And so, yeah, in the rapture kit. <laughs> we'll have to get that for next time. We'll take orders. Yeah. Um, what happens, though, when it's not the secondary issues that come under the fire of doubt? Right? What happens when it's the central issues of the Christian faith? Because they're different, right? There's a difference between the resurrection uh, the crucifixion and atoning death of Jesus, right? Salvation by grace through faith. What happens when those things are things you start to doubt? What happens when you doubt the resurrection? Let's just use that as an example, right? If you looked at the resurrection, you say, that's weird, a guy coming back from the dead. I can compare that to nothing. Um, and you start to say, this is something I'm doubting. But at the same time, we know that, look, Paul said, it's an absolutely essential element of the Christian creedal faith. Right, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we don't have the resurrection, our faith is in vain. Right? All the early gospel writers are like, hey, check it out. Jesus ate breakfast. Jesus, somebody touched Jesus' hand. And they go out of their way to say he wasn't a ghost. He was a guy whose physical body came back from the dead, and, and that's going to be us someday, and it's transformed in some way. But the creeds of the church have all proclaimed the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. They've all done that. Yet... We know that resurrection should be beyond a doubt, but we come to this idea of resurrection and we struggle with it because we have no rational, logical place to place it. It's not like you say, oh yes, I know, you know the study of science, the study of mathematics, the resurrection of human beings from the grave. We don't have a place to put that, and so it causes doubt sometimes. And here's what I would want to say about that. Stunningly, amazingly, thankfully, with the New Testament we have, the most trustworthy manuscripts of any ancient uh, document from that era. Right? There is no other document, and I teach New Testament, so I'm a bit biased, but it's true. There is no other ancient document that the manuscript volume, the manuscript, when you compare the manuscripts together, uh, the, the trustworthiness and uh, quality of those manuscripts show us beyond you know, 99 point whatever percent that this is what the original said. If you read Aristotle, nowhere near the, the amount of manuscripts we have for the New Testament. So in a sense, you go, I can trust the New Testament, right? But that only gets us so far. You go, that will solve my doubt. I'll just trust the New Testament. 
I'll just trust the New Testament. It's reliable. That's true. Yet what we have in the New Testament is an incredibly reliable text that tells, from a human perspective, an incredibly unbelievable story. You don't just go, oh, this is a good manuscript. I believe dead people rise from the grave. Right? It's not a reason thing. It's not a logic thing. It's a faith thing. So doubt deniers assume, oh, well, we can't have any of that. We can't have any of that. You're weak. You're weak. You're weak if you doubt. Ask questions. You're weak. Just don't tell anybody if you do. But if you're going to, we can easily explain how resurrection works. We can easily explain it. It's very easy. Five simple steps. It's very easy. Like, this is when you hear a sermon, and maybe in, you know, uh, I've heard, recently heard a really good sermon on Jonah. Um, but I've heard some sermons on Jonah where the whole sermon's around, like, you don't understand. Okay? If you're inside of a fish, there's a lining, a lining in the stomach, you see. And this is how he was inside the fishy. And, you know, and they're going on the whole thing about how could a man be in a fish. And then once in Uzbekistan, a man was recorded as having been inside a large sea creature, some sort of a beast, if you will. And uh, he was vomited. He was vomited out onto the shore. And we have evidence of this in the papyri. You go, oh, okay. <laughs> like, wow, cool. Um, vomiting fish, people in them. And it kind of misses the point of the story of Jonah, and they spent, kind of spent the whole time looking at the weird thing. But with the New Testament, it's the same thing. You can't, you can't preach resurrection by saying, I can ex- look, I can explain it. I can explain it. Dead people, he rose from the dead. Like our only, the closest thing we have is zombies, I guess. And that's way far off. Right? And if you watch The Walking Dead, have you ever seen that? The Walking Dead is one of the most melodramatic, terrible zombie series I've ever seen in my life in the name of Jesus. It's just so bad. It's so melodramatic. I, I, I would not recommend it. Back to the, back to the talk. <laughs> I just, look, I, I have to be honest with you as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just bad. It's cheesy. There's like people singing and dancing and stuff. You're not supposed to have song and dance numbers in, in a zombie flick. It's just not good. But we cannot use reason to get to something and explain something which is inherently beyond reason. So for the doubt deniers, there's no way to just, we'll reason your way to the, re- the resurrection. You can't. It's beyond reason. You know, the New Testament gives us a very, very reliable rendering of an irrational, illogical, ridiculous story of a crucified and resurrected God. Human reason alone cannot get us to the truth of the resurrection. Deep, careful historical study alone from a human perspective cannot get us to believe that a man rose from the dead. The empty tomb defies reason. It doesn't operate according to reason. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. It's literally unreasonable. And Paul, Paul talks about this. Have you read 1 Corinthians 1 when he's talking about the cross? He says the foolishness of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. In other words, you don't just look at the cross and you go, uh-huh, yeah, a guy, that's God nailed to the cross, I believe it. You have to see it through the eyes of faith, which in some sense is a gift. In some sense means trusting in God in his faithfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't just happen by reason. And it's the same thing with the resurrection. No matter what argument you make, you can't prove it. And if, if you're someone who celebrates uncertainty and you say, well, therefore, it didn't happen, that's a whole other thing. Because while we can't say everything about the resurrection, we can say some things about an empty tomb 
and, and these sort of things. Um, and I, I would just say that um, that that sort of logic is where faulty faith falls apart. If we try to explain that which is inexplicable, um, we, we really fall short. And as it is with the foolishness of the cross, so it is with the ridiculousness of the resurrection, so it is with the irrationality of the incarnation, so it is with the inconceivable claim of the Immaculate Conception. History, right? Even reliable history in the Bible, which I'm saying is reliable, leads us to these correct claims, but it cannot cause the claims to have converting power. It cannot convince us in itself of the claims. This is because faith is not the result of human logic. Faith is not the result of human rationality. Faith is the gift of God that allows us to trust in the unreasonable trustworthiness and faithfulness of God. It doesn't operate like a math equation. Point one, point two, resurrection. Point one, point two, atoning death on the cross. There is something supernatural about it. And when you hear the message of the cross preached, what happens is Jesus makes himself present to you by the power of the Spirit. So in thinking about doubt, thinking about uncertainty, and thinking about belief and trust, what we really have to do is base our trust in God's faithfulness. Now, I just, I just want to say something about the celebration uh, of uncertainty. Because when it comes to the resurrection, I've had many conversations. I got roasted by some people for an article I wrote in Journey on the resurrection, where some people's attitude was like, we can't believe you care about the resurrection. It's like, what? <laughs> it's like, really, you should know that that's important to us here. Um, and it's important, like I said, to the Bible and to the early creeds and all those things. So it's hard to deal with, but it's important. And as I was saying, we can know some things about the resurrection. We don't have to float off into this black hole of uncertainty celebration where we need to deny the resurrection because we don't understand it, where we need to demythologize the resurrection because we don't understand it. You see how arrogant that is? I can't understand it, therefore it must not be true. Um, we don't have to outright deny the resurrection because we can't understand it. We have to trust in the unreasonable faithfulness of God through the victory of Jesus Christ in his bodily resurrection. Friends, it's not reason that leads us to the empty tomb, it's revelation. And so what convinces the Greek that the cross is not foolishness, but the power of God unto salvation? What turns the stumbling block of the Jews into the cornerstone of the temple of God? What changes the resurrection of Jesus from an object of absurdity into a demonstration of glory? It is not proof but presence. It is not reason, but revelation. It is not the apologetics and intellect of men. It is the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ, as Galatians says. How can we believe the resurrection? What if we doubt the resurrection? How can we believe the resurrection? We can't. We can't believe the resurrection. We must first trust in the resurrection. It's a reality that is, humanly speaking, beyond belief. It's beyond belief. We can't say, well, I can't believe it because I don't understand it. We trust in it before we explain it. And when it comes to the resurrection, it happens to be beyond explanation. So we can't critique the resurrection by saying, I can't explain it. That's an obvious point. It can't be explained. It's a mystery. But it's a mystery that relies not on the ether of the universe and God's a cloud and I don't know. It's a mystery that relies on God's faithfulness and how we can trace that through salvation history. 
I want to close with this and open it up to questions. If you have questions in the room or folks who are watching, if you have questions, I would like to engage with you on these things. I want to say that through God's gracious initiative, we will be able to believe the unbelievable, true story of salvation. But it's only through God's gracious initiative. And it's only through his spiritual enabling of our hearts to believe that. We can't get there by human reason. There's a, a chasm between human knowledge and God. There's a, God is unlike anything else. Theologians say there's an infinite qualitative distinction between God and everything else. God is not science. God is not the study of, you know, uh, painting or art or anything. God is completely other. And so we can't use reason and rationality to get to God. It takes a measure of supernatural trust. And maybe if, if you've never embraced Jesus, maybe what you're hearing tonight is, is he reaching out to you and saying, trust in me? Trust in me, I'm the God of faithfulness. Our faith will not rest and will not be sustained by the power of human wisdom or by the power of explanation, but it must rest in God's faithfulness. And when our faith does rest on that, then we can cry out to him in our moments of despair, in our moments of weakness, in our moments of anxiety. I believe, help my unbelief. And even in our uncertainty, and even in our doubt, we will be strengthened in our weakness. And we will come very close to the living God who loved us and who gave himself for us. It's in him that we place our faith because of his promises and his faithfulness. Thanks. Thank you very much, John. Yeah. Uh, I, te I teach a course at UQ next semester, Belief and Unbelief. So the first lecture is taken care of. I'm up for a coffee. <laughs> podcast of John goes. Yeah, that would be good. But, John, seriously, thank you so much. Uh, you are looking pleasure, at buddy. something that's very fundamental about the Christian mm. journey, about belief, unbelief, doubt, uh, mystery, mm. and how to navigate through that. And so thank you for your wise counsel and for your honesty and uh, for so that great ability to have fun along the way but making some very serious points. I really Thanks, appreciate man. it. Appreciate that, So we've got some questions from our Caloundra folks. John, uh, how does the New Testament phrase to believe in Lord Jesus mm. complement or differ from the Old Testament psalmist putting my trust in the Lord? Mm. Is one a Christological question and the other a daily living question? Mm. So question. believe in the Lord Jesus on yeah. the one hand and putting my trust in the Lord from the Psalms on the other. So I see, this is how I would answer that, I think. Uh, there's some people that will say, what we really need is the New Testament, we really need Jesus particularly, we need the, the Gospels, etc. In the Old Testament, oh, just a mess. You know, we don't know what to do with this. It's what happened. God grew up or something. Uh, he got... And, and it's, in some sense, it's true. There's a progression from Genesis to Revelation where we're getting closer and closer and closer and closer to truth. Who is Jesus in person? Right? And so when I look at the way that the Old Testament thinks about the faith, sometimes the way you'll hear it framed is, well, you know what the problem with Judaism was? It wasn't Christianity. And you think post-Holocaust, right? What a thing to say. Um, it's like, oh, and we think of the Jewish religion this way as if like those are the bad guys in the Gospels. 
and then Jesus saved us from Judaism. But note, note to everybody who might want to do that, the, everything that's said about Jesus, including the word Christ, which means Messiah, is predicated on the fact that he was a Jew. Jesus is not the cancellation of Judaism. He's the fulfillment of Judaism. So in the Old Testament, when people place their trust in God, in the Greek, it's usually the same word in, as belief in the New Testament. And I think this actually brings up an important problem. Trusting God in Israel was on the basis, almost always, you see, we trust in you, Lord. We place our trust in you because of your steadfast love and faithfulness, because of your loving kindness to Israel. You brought us out of the land of Egypt. And they'll go into these big, long stories. They won't just say, I believe in you. I've figured out a mathematical way to describe you, you see. In the New Testament, it's a problem with the way that same word is translated because at the heart of the Greek word, it really means trust. Now, there's a belief component to it. But when we say belief, we almost, again, fall into that faulty understanding that as long as I believe the correct things, that's really what matters. Now, doctrine is important. Hear me. And I think I've said this, and if you've read anything I've written anybody, you'll know that I'm, this is an emphasis of mine. Nevertheless, doctrine is penultimate. The ultimate is God. Good doctrine is meant to bring us close to a good God. And the way that we know him as a good God is from Genesis to Revelation. There's one covenant of grace. There's one God who, through the people of Israel, brings Jesus, the Messiah, to fulfill everything that Israel is supposed to be. And that's really the story of the scriptures, is that Jesus is the fulfillment, and he is Israel in person. Everything that God promised to come to the world through Israel comes to the world through Israel, Israel in person, Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, when they place their trust in God, it's the same as when we place our trust in God. We shouldn't do it because we first have explained God. We should do it as the first step of learning more and more about him. And in my view, the beautiful, wonderful thing is it's like running into the arms of an infinitely loving, inexhaustible, beautiful, inexplicable father who we know is good because we've seen him act in Revelation, but who will never truly understand fully because he's so far beyond anything we could say, including the words we use. Sorry, I'm getting a little excited. <laughs> There's a few of these questions. Oh, um, boy. They're coming. Uh-oh. So this is also from Cloundra. Yeah. Uh, is John able to pick up the matter of I believe, as it mm. comes in the creed, mm. that seems to ask us to believe in the church on the same level, question mark, as Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Oh, I believe in the church. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Is there a hierarchy? Oh, this is, to me, the most difficult thing, having been in a, a person who's been in ministry and churches and just generally around other human beings. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's right. I was like, it, you say, I believe in the, oh, the church. Oh, good. You know, like, I love Jesus, but the church. Ah. And it's still a stigma, and I don't think we've quite figured out how to bridge that gap in a post-Christian world to the next generation of people who don't know church as church. We have not figured, we're all on that journey together trying to figure that out. But I think the beautiful truth of the New Testament that I've found, and I came kicking and screaming to this, because I would much rather have a private Christ than a corporate God to worship, right? I'd rather he'd be my solo Jesus, me and my buddy. Um, that there is no following Jesus without also loving his bride, which is the church. There is no true love of Jesus without seeing him in the face of other people, including your enemy, and saying, you are worth everything to God, and I will give it all for you. Now, that's an ideal, right? See how beautiful that ideal is? Now it comes to 
your interaction with people. Weird stuff happens. Strange things are said. People are insensitive. The church doesn't feel any different from outside the church. But hear me, the message of the New Testament is that God didn't just die for individual persons. He died for a people, a people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue, and he will bring transforming love to the world through the church. And there is nothing that will stop him from doing that, even our own politicking, even our own imperfections, even our own poor theology. He will do it in spite of that because Jesus' body is the church, and he came just as much for the church as he did for individuals. In fact, you can't have one without the other. So here's a question about the distinction between, it says here celebrating mystery, but you use the term celebrating uncertainty. Mm. Uh, which, how is that different from what we call apophatic theology, which is proper? Mm. Yeah, I mean, just not to go too deep into the theological terminology, uh, I think to say there's things that we can't know about God and there's things that we, even the, the limits of language to speak about God, everything we say about God is by analogy. So when we call God Father, right, uh, we have some image in our mind of what a father is and that helps us to think of God, but we're speaking using human language to describe that which is beyond human language, beyond conceptuality. So I don't think there's any problem with that. Uh, I don't think there's any problem with apophatic and cataphatic theology and, and, and having a, a, a negative, what's called negative theology, which is very popular in the Eastern traditions. Um, what I'm really concerned about, to be honest, is... Um, let me look straight at the camera now. <laughs> Friends, what I'm really concerned about is this, this view, and I hear it on the liturgists, and I hear it in Pete Rollins' stuff, of what they call a pyrotheology. So they call it pyrotheology, so we've got to burn it all down because we can't know, and to, to doubt is, and it just sounds cooler when an Irish guy says it than a Bostonian, to doubt is divine, you know, and just go, it must be true because he's Irish and he's cool, but to doubt is divine, and you just go, Hmm, that sounds cool. Um, but actually what that leaves you with is the, what I call the black hole of celebratory uncertainty. You're just in this sort of, get sucked into nothingness and you go like, I can't know anything about God. Come to my church and tithe. Come to, I have nothing to tell you. I have nothing for you. And people want to come and go, my daughter's sick. I don't know if she's going to make it through. My, my spouse is in the hospital, can you give me an answer? This ha thing happened in New Zealand. How do we respond to that? And if, if we take apathetic theology or the view of God, we can't know, man. We just can't know, man. If you take that to the ultimate extreme, I've just seen it rip people away into atheism. And so while I don't want to go at the doubt deniers and say, let's just explain everything. We have to be nice and tidy and, and explain. It's just to say that we can't know in entirety is, I think, more of what I'm after. So the role of Scripture mm. and our interpretation of Scripture in the oh. balance between faith and doubt. The, our, the role of Scripture... And our interpretation of Scripture when mm. it comes to working out the balance between yeah. faith and healthy doubt. Yeah, faith and healthy doubt. So I would say that the role... Let's, let me just speak in terms that I think everybody could un, un, uh, would, everybody would accept, whether or not someone holds my particular view. If you're interested in my view of what the Word of God is, check out the latest journey... There's also a piece from Vicki Balabansky and Liz Bowes and um, Andrew Dutney uh, that kind of counterpoint that. And you can get that at your churches, or we have some here if you'd like that. Um, whether or not you agree with me on what the Bible is and how it should be regarded, 
I think the Bible is a story of God's faithfulness to Israel so that through Israel, he might bring blessing to the world. This is what we see in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. And it's unwinding and unfolding all the way until we get to Jesus. So I think if we read the Bible with that view of here's God selecting a people not instead of the world. Do you ever think about that? What about all the other people groups? And when you think about that, you should think they had babies. Not like they're the bad guy. They're the, Israel's the good guy. What about all the other people? Well, God selected Israel so that through Israel, blessing would come to the world. Not so that the rest of the world can go to hell in a handbasket. He just said, I'm going to select the people. And the way he's done that is through Jesus. So when we read the scriptures, it's the story of God's covenant faithfulness from start to finish, which culminates in Jesus Christ, which gets as clear as possible in Jesus Christ. And then from Jesus Christ, we go back and read the rest of scripture. And the bits and pieces that seem to make not a lot of sense start to make a lot of sense when we look at him through the, the lens of Jesus Christ. And, and we're not always going to agree on Scripture, but I think that, um, I think that, the debate, that talking about these things is good. And I think the, the only problem is when we say we belittle Scripture. Ah, the Old Testament, it's this, it's that, and it's stupid. And it's, I mean, the stuff I've heard about the Old Testament is, is just amazing to me. And then what I would just encourage you to do is if you hear someone talking about the Old Testament or you're inclined to say those things about the Old Testament, look at what Jesus himself said about the Old Testament in Luke 24. The way he described his own ministry was not to burn the Old Testament down like Marcion. The way that he described his ministry was to say, that whole book's about me. Every word, every page points to me. And then you go, if you ditch and unhitch the Old Testament, you lose Jesus. You lose Jesus. So this, this is a question about bricks and cornerstones. So what are the things that are not up for grabs and how do you make a decision about that? Well, see, what happens here is I go, what are my favorite things? <laughs> I think that creedal Christianity, what's called the rule of faith in the early church, what's called the apostolic sound deposit in the Bible, is clear, is uh, you know, not, I'm not saying it's obvious, things like the resurrection. I would say the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. I would say that some way his death on the cross atones for our sin. And then, of course, some people say, well, those, we can't, you know, what Boltmann used to say in the 20s, modern man at that time, they would say, can't believe in miracles. I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. I think people are more spiritual but not religious. I think they're more agnostic than atheistic. And they believe in things like ghosts and the spiritual world and supernatural things. And so I think the plausibility structure is different than it was in the 1920s, where it's not sophisticated, you see? It's not sophisticated to believe in the resurrection, see? No, it's not that anymore. It's that people have a vague spirituality, and it's like when Paul walked into Athens and said, you see that? You see that statue to an unknown God? I know who God is, and I will tell you. Now, to some people, that sounds dangerous and preposterous and scary, but to us Christians who are being saved, it's the power of God into salvation. And so, yeah, um, I think that the, the key creedal things are, you know, when someone says to me, I want to move on from the resurrection, I, I would say to them, I love you. That's a different religion now. You know what I mean? If someone says, I want to move on from uh, uh, sin or something like that, people don't like sin. Not a nice word and people don't like it. Uh, let's move on from sin. I would be like, you can do that in a religious studies department, right? And just objectively talk about it. But you, we mustn't do that as the church because when you do that, 
I mean, to use the uniting context, start pulling those things out. It's like, what are you going to unite around? You know, I mean, this sort of thing, like, like um, uh, the Gungers talk about God. This is what they say. They say, we don't know who God is, but he is, is the, like the ocean. He is an ocean. And you go, right, well, what does that mean? And I'm, look, look, what I'm saying is, no way am I giving my life to God is the ocean. <laughs> he's like the waves, and he's like glittery stars and whatnot. Um, no, I'm not giving my life for that. You know, and I think most people want to hear a truth that's worth living for, but also that's worth dying for. Like if someone came up to you and said, would you die for this gospel? It's easy to say, oh, well, just what do you want me to deny? The resurrection? Whatever. But if you can say, no, nah, this is core to who I am. That's, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When Perpetua, who was an early apostle who had just had a baby, was put on trial by the early emperors of Rome, she was burned and put into the you know, uh, Colosseum. And she would not, even though people are saying, you must recant, you must recant, she would not recant because faith wants delivered to the saints. And I wonder sometimes, are we more worried about what people think and if they'll like us than telling them the hard truth of the narrow way of Jesus, which actually turns out to be the best thing that we could actually give them? Uh, have we watered down Jesus because we're afraid that people will leave? Well, they're already leaving. What we need to give them is more Jesus. And the one Jesus, the only Jesus, the true Jesus, the creedal Jesus. And that's the Jesus I would want to live for and the Jesus I'd die for. Pretty intense. Yeah. Do you believe we ought to encourage doubt and uncertainty in our churches among people of all ages, including youth? Among the spectrum of people you mentioned, there exists a large number of Christians who have never questioned their faith or have been socialized into the church. Mm -hmm. How are some ways you would see this successfully being challenged? Uh, I don't think we should ever encourage doubt. I think to deny it is delusional and to celebrate it is deadly. And so I think what we need to do is say, be honest with people. Have, have, have you ever had that feeling like I can't have an honest conversation with another Christian, but with my atheist friend that I'm having a beer with, I can? Have you ever had that feeling? I have that feeling a lot. Because there's a stigma in the church about being real and, and asking questions. Asking questions isn't wrong, but when you let it suck you away into that black hole, that's the problem. And so what I would say is you never encourage people to doubt, but you let them know that it's a natural part of the human experience to go through a dark night of the soul, to not feel the presence of God, maybe for a season, maybe for years, to, to be uninspired by preaching or things like this, to be disappointed in the church or confused about theology. And all I would encourage them would be to get a place in the church where you can have one-to-one -one real conversations with people. When the church is at its best, that's what's happening because it's relational. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, you shouldn't, it would be, for instance, Peter Rollins saying, you, sh you should worship doubt. It's divine. I would say that's, that's what I'm after to say. We need to get at that and say, actually, that's not going to, not only is pragmatically not going to grow the church, it's, it's the opposite. We want to be integrating doubt within the framework of faithfulness. But if we ditch the framework of faithfulness, doubt's just going to eat us and eat away at our soul. So this question is more personal. Could you tell us about a time when your faith was really, really challenged, or even when you felt that God was truly not real? What was oh. that like? What or who helped you to deal with it? Yeah, just briefly, when I was studying for my doctorate in Scotland... I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts. In case you couldn't realize, I'm not Australian. 
Um, right? But I love this place. Great country. Medicare for all. Mm. all right. I just want to say one thing. The election's coming up in 2020. Bernie Sanders. Okay? Yes, I don't agree with him on anything, but I mean, he's... he's Feel the burn, okay? Um, <laughs> what was the question? It was about my own doubt. Yeah, so it's when I... Medicare. Yeah, it's not Medicare, but I just want to say I'm for Medicare for all in the States. Thank so you a time when your faith was really, yeah. really challenged, when you felt that God was truly not real, what was that like? What or who helped you to deal with it? I was in the UK. I remember it was Christmas. I felt so dejected because everybody that I was around in this divinity department was saying, oh, yeah, they weren't of the same kind of faith that I was. And so I started to question, is, is it, have I been naive? Have I been stupid? Come all the way here to study this, and now I realize none of it's real. <laughs> you know, I'm reading Boltman for the first time, who demythologizes everything. Well, Christ wasn't divine. He didn't rise from the dead. He just rose in our hearts and all this stuff. Um, and, you know, just saying we can't have any of that, you know, mystery or supernatural. So I really struggled. And the place that I found my faith was in a small Scottish church with nothing. They didn't even have music. Uh, they just had hymn singing. They didn't allow musical instruments at the time. And it was just hearing somebody sing the Psalms about God's faithfulness, about his rescue of Israel from Egypt. And then you think about what's the corollary in the New Testament. Jesus took us on an exodus out of sin and slavery to sin into new life. <laughs> and then what happens? Has this happened to you? You, you uh, like the book of Revelation says, remember the height from which you have fallen. It's talking to the lukewarm churches. It says, remember the height from which you have fallen. And something in you remembers what it was like when you first trusted God. And your heart wells up and your soul feels full and you remember that God is real and that you owe him everything and that he is everything. So that was one of the times when that happened. There's been many times. Uh, and uh, I had an uh, issue in a church I was in once and I felt like, attacked in this church, and you know, I preached on the peace of Jesus, and the pastor and I had a fight about this, um, uh, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's what Christmas is really about, and, um, and so, you know, that was very frustrating to me, because I'm like, come on, even in the church, I can't find a place to just place my feet, and uh, I think that's what the postmodern condition is. Many of us feel like we're floating around. And we have nowhere to land. And that's just what it is. But I think, nevertheless, I've, I've, you know, through other people and through God's ministry to me through the Spirit and through the church, it's been both my own worst enemy and my greatest, deepest saving grace. Thank you, John. Yeah. Um, do some people have a greater capacity for faith in mystery than others? If so, what do you think it is that develops that capacity? Oh, I have no idea. Um, I just think there are some people who like certainty. There are some people who don't like their, their theology messed with in any way. And all I'm trying to say tonight is I get that, and I have that as well, and there's a, there's a conscientiousness and a curiosity in me that wants to put things together. I mean, I'm the kind of person who eats the same thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, basically. So I like routine. Um, but I don't think there's a particular kind of person who you know, may, maybe can embrace mystery, but I do think there's people who love certainty and if you take their certainty away, it's like taking their faith away. And that's what I'm calling an idol. Because their faith is not, their faith is dependent on their ability to explain God. Well, we can't explain he who is beyond explanation in any comprehensive way. We can only grasp at him and run into his arms because we know him to be a faithful father. Because, and not because of our own 
calculations because of what we've seen him done from Genesis to Revelation in salvation history, in the history of Israel. That's why I believe God, not because I'm convinced by my own systematic theology. Why do we have to stop having faith like little children? Why do we have to stop? Having faith like little children. We should never stop having faith like little children. As soon as you become a master of divinity, there's a degree called, a degree called a master of divinity, you have to realize actually who the master is, and it's not you. But we start acting like, man, man it's, it's the church, it's the academy. We know it's this, it's this particular theology, and we all do it sometimes. Um, and I think the more that we can come back and realize we're children running into the arms of a God who's way bigger than our ability to even put words to explain who he is, that's when you truly start to love God again. That's when you're willing to deal with the holy tension and the friction caused in life of faith, and it becomes not a burden, but something that makes you closer to Jesus. But, I mean, I don't have this down. I mean, it's seasons ebb and flow. So I hope you hear me saying that I'm not like, I have figured it out, here's the answer. I'm just uh, out ahead a bit on thinking a bit on this particular issue. But so, yeah. You describe eloquently the risk of building our faith on particular theological structures mm -hmm. instead of on Jesus Christ. This is true for me, but this choice depends on a strong confidence in personal models of revelation. How do you suggest we walk the middle line between individual, individualistic understandings arising from such revelations and rigid obedience to structured systems of belief? Yeah, personal revelations, okay. Um, recognizing that we have Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters maybe in the room, and I, I all some kind of, I'm not totally charismatic, but I believe the Spirit can do whatever God wants to do. If God wants to heal someone, he'll heal someone, right? Um, that's my view. If you want to speak in tongues, you know, don't do it right now, but um, <laughs> uh, it doesn't bother me, right? Um, this, view, this idea of personal revelation, though, this is one of my issues where people will, and let me get a little controversial here, people will say the Bible's not the Word of God, uh, it becomes the Word of God or something like this, which is actually partly what Bart says, but he actually says much more than that. They'll think they're following Carl Bart when they say that. That, oh, it's not the book that's God. The word happens, you know. And it's true. Actually, Calvin says this, that it, it, until the spirit gets involved, it's just, human, you know, it's just words on a page. Spirit gets involved, becomes a revelation to us. And that's part of what I was saying in the last part of my talk. Becomes a problem, though, when you totally detach revelation from any of the syntax or grammar or words in Scripture so that you can basically make scripture say whatever you want and say, I've had a revelation. And it's the, like you're reading, uh, uh, it's, you know, do not practice sexual immorality. You have, I have a revelation. I should practice sexual immorality. Because it was God speaking to me in the moment and his word still speaks. When it starts to speak the opposite of what is said in the text, that might be your own wishful thinking rather than the word of God. I just caution with that. Uh, the second thing would be uh, traditionally in, and I agree with this, that personal revelation is not co-equal with God's revelation in Holy Scripture. It's not co-equal. So if someone comes to you and has a word of knowledge, maybe you're not from this tradition, and they'll say, God told me this. Okay, but they really should be saying, they're not, it's not a thus says the Lord like when Isaiah speaks. You know, they might come, people have come to me and said weird things, like that I'm going to be a chef and own my own restaurant. No. <laughs> 
right? Like I cook microwave pizzas, chicken nuggets in the oven, uh, and, and sausages. I'm not going to own my own restaurant unless God, I guess God could work a miracle, right? Um, it's going to have a small menu. But, you know, people will say that. And to some people, God spoke this to me, and he spoke something different to you. And the word of God, the Bible says something. But we're not going to listen to that because God spoke to me something. And they act like this is equal to, to what the word says. So you don't want to rigid fundamentals because the Bible says a lot of weird stuff. And you do have to read it through the lens of Jesus. But I just find that sometimes the personal revelation side of things will lead people to deny core elements of the faith and to, to pick up kind of their own wishful thinking. And I think that's problematic. If the Bible is saying something, especially in the New Testament when we've seen it, an Old Testament concept come through Jesus, if the Bible is saying something, we better have really good reason to say something else. Uh, otherwise, we're saying that we have the word of God whilst claiming that this is not the word of God. And I would, just, I would just caution the way we think about that. And even the, the key component, one of the key crafts of the basis of union, which the basis says that we hear the word of God in Scripture. So some people want to say Scripture is not the word of God. We just hear the word of God. And, and then the word of God becomes this amorphous thing. What is he speaking? He's speaking something new. Well, it doesn't matter what's in the text. He's just speaking through it. It could be a Dr. Seuss book to, for, for those people, for all, all who you know, they, they know. But what happens is you get away from the text and you can actually say anything you want. The, the key crafter of the basis of union actually said what, what he meant by word of God was the biblical words and the biblical themes and the, he literally said the words in the Bible. And a lot of people sometimes in an effort to, to get away from the Bible will use this kind of language. And actually Karl Barth, when he says the Bible becomes the word of God, he also says in Church Dogmatics that the Old Testament is the witness to God's revelation in the past. So it's not like it's just a bunch of words. We make up its content. Bart, Karl Bart, the framer behind what's in the basis of union, the theology in there, would say that the Old Testament is the record of God's revelation past and revelation present happens when the words of the Bible come alive again in our presence. You know, and I just think that's important. If we're going to go Bartian, if we're going to start following Karl Bart, let's follow the whole Karl Bart. And, and start to see what he has to say. And so that might be controversial, but uh, well, you're not going to please everybody. You know, what are you going to do? Um. Sure. Um, faith in one's understanding of God and faith in the faithfulness of God yeah. still boil down to one's own faith, even faith gifted by God. Assuming, that, assuming this, when life events take us to dark times, mm. for example, Job, causing us to question God's faithful to us, yeah. is not our doubt or lack of faith still not the basis of our condemnation? No. I would say that I don't think that God's... So this is what I'm trying to say, and this may sound controversial. Uh, I think the basis of salvation is not predicated first and foremost on my own faith. You know, people say, I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by the work of faith that I do. That's really what they mean sometimes. I'm not saved by doing works. They'll think, like, that's what the Catholics say. I'm saved by faith. And you go, well, isn't faith the one work that you have to do to get saved then? And why that? Why that? But underneath faith is trust. It really is trust in God's faithfulness. And so, yeah, I think there's seasons where we don't understand and we cry out to God. Uh, and we say, why is this happening? The Psalms do this all the time. The scriptures invite you into that kind of emotional place. And it's good and healthy to do that.
But I think that as soon as we remove it from the realm of the, the framework of faithfulness, we're, we're, we really are floating away into the ethereal realm of nothingness, or we've just become stuck in, I have to defend and explain everything or else it's not true, which is the idolatry of the self. I've made myself God at that point. You know, I hear all these people trying to say, here's the empty tomb, I can explain it, apologetics. And I'm, I'm wanting to say, dude, you can't explain that to somebody. It's just not, it's ridiculous. It's not going to make sense. The only way it makes sense, is, and I would grant this, is if God, if, if we kind of grab hold of the grace of God that's extended to us, and on the basis of that supernatural knowing, can then get there. I mean, Kierkegaard talks about this as a leap of faith. It's not a leap of faith based on nothing. We have some reasons to take that leap. But the ultimate leap, finally, into the arms of God is entirely, we, we, we have nothing to offer. It's entirely God's gracious gift to us. It's entirely His Holy Spirit. We hate that. We go, what can I do? What can I offer? Nothing. Nothing. You have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer you. And so when you place your faith in what He's offered you, hold on to that in those dark moments. When someone has cancer, when somebody's in the hospital, these are dark moments. Don't deny them. Everything's fine. I'm a Christian. Wrestle with them. Cry and, and, and weep with your friends, right? But trust in the faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ. And even if you can just even be crawling towards Jesus, scratching and crawling towards him, that's what it feels like some days. You feel like you're barely, barely hanging on, but move toward Jesus. Keep going to Christ the center. And that doubt will integrate itself. And in the Bible says, Bible says suffering leads to glory. You don't seek out suffering. We're not weirdos. Well, some of us are. But, um, you know, like, we don't seek suffering and go, this is good, I like suffering. Uh, but we, we, as Christians, I'll just leave it with this. We know that suffering is never futile. It is also formative. So that your suffering is never in vain. It always brings you closer to the God who is suffering love, whose love on the cross did not forsake suffering, but actually took it upon himself absorbing sin and evil, and ultimately defeating death. If there are atheists in the room who would like to say this, and if there are people watching, you may have a great philosophy, but we cannot get past the problem of death. We might even think we've solved the problem of evil, but the problem of death haunts us, and it's not the circle of life, akuna matata, like Lion King thing, like, oh, it's just a circle, right? Death happens, it will happen to everyone in this room. And the gospel, the core message of the gospel is not how good am I, how good and correct is my theology? It is how amazing is the God who defeated death, burst the open tomb, and defeated death. If you are a Christian, grab hold of that in faithfulness, even when you're crawling towards it, and it will sustain you in the midst of great doubt. Thank you. Thanks, Neil.